Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 260, Bow Before the Victors, recorded November 20th, 2016, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only place on the internet where geeks rant. Doesn't happen anywhere else but here. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts. See how you got that? You're now a stalwart co-host, Miles. Um, Seth, the gooey kid Anderson, and Miles, the master of the coin. Wake up. Hey, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome, Element Opiate Faithful. Coin down. <laughs> Whatever that means. I have no idea. <laughs> so uh, Seth has his own reasons for calling this one Battle Before the Victors, but I told him I'm just going to assume it's in reference to the Cowboys win today. Nine and one, baby. Uh, alone atop the standings in the NFL. That's all I got to say. Yeah, and we'll get to why it, why I chose that name later, but after I did, I realized this has nothing to do with the uh, politics carryover from last week. There will so be no politics political. in this show. That is my promise to you. There will be no politics in this show. I'm holding back. <laughs> <laughs> we went super heavy, and surprisingly, I've gotten zero, well, actually not zero, but uh, very little. Uh, response only one email that that will i'll read here in a little bit to last week's show so e- people either in shock or they've unsubscribed uh, i need to go check the numbers and see uh see what happens but uh well you usually know. our audience is like a week behind so maybe That's next true. week we'll be diluted de- deluged with <laughs> deluded might be the better word you know th- the <laughs> fact is most people don't respond to anything right the most people who buy products don't review them most people who from whom feedback is solicited don't give it, and I am among the most. I subscribe to, I don't know, 50-ish podcasts. I don't recall that I've ever sent an email to any of them about anything. You know, So I am just as guilty as my own audience is when I say, hey, what do you think? And they all say nothing. Um, it's hard to type in a pool of tears. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> um, but we're all busy people, and podcasting, uh, podcast listening as a general rule, is something done while doing something else. And right. it, it's incredibly ephemeral. Uh, people don't rewind and, and re-listen to podcasts. They don't uh, hang on every word. They miss big chunks of it because their attention wanders or whatever. And that's just the way it is. Um, so I, I don't mind that my listeners haven't uh, responded. I, I expect, I understand what it is, but um, I'll be honest and say the show's better when we hear from you. Um, as Malcolm Gladwell, I think it was Gladwell, said that oftentimes the smartest person in the room is the room. Uh, so we need uh, we need you guys to uh, add to our collective intelligence. Yeah, I listen to a, a financial podcast, and you know, and they know a lot about stocks and bonds and the stock market, and you know, I I could throw out some lingo there. But then they they the few times they've talked about Bitcoin, and while I'm no Bitcoin master, I uh, I just I keep meaning I just need to write these people and tell them how clueless they are. But then you know, I'm busy doing something else, um, and that never happens. Yeah. So yes, I totally understand. And when you got a guy like Howard Stern or uh, you know or Rush Limbaugh, to, to, I often uh, like to put those two uh, diametrically opposed ends of the spectrum. You get a guy like that with an engaged audience that that is you know he's doing drive time radio. That's what Howard Stern did for years, and his audience was so engaged that they would actually change their lives, or you know they would spend money, they would subscribe to Sirius Satellite Radio, um, or was it XM, whichever uh, for him. That's that's a rare thing. You know, when you get people uh, will, who will actually take action in mass 
um, for a radio show or, you know, a, a, a pundit of any kind, that's a very rare thing. And I, I recognize that we're not, we're, we're common. We're not rare. Um, right. So it is what it is. Someday I hope to reach rare status. Uh, but right now there's a million people just like me, apparently. I don't know, Mark. I much prefer extremely well done status. Uh, yes. So. Yes. <laughs> Crispy like bacon. So uh, I, I wanted to give a couple of a quick reviews of, of media I have been consuming recently. Um, most of this, all of this is actually old stuff. So I'm catching up, but um, I don't know that people look forward to this, but nobody's told me to stop. So this is the part of the show that has become a regular thing. Uh, so I'm just going to run through a couple of things. I, I saw this week X-Men Apocalypse. Uh, and based on um, what I had heard people say about it, you included, Seth, I really wasn't expecting much at all. I really enjoyed the movie. It was not, it's not a good movie. Let's just get that off the table. It's not a good movie, but it's a fun two hours. Um, I found the characters, while not believable, they were enjoyable. Uh, right. And of course, Quicksilver doing his thing um, was was always a joy to watch. Uh, and, you know, the, the villain, as always, uh, Marvel, in this case, uh, uh, Fox, uh, using a Marvel property, wasted a good villain. But that's just, at this point, I come to accept that. If you're not Darth Vader, you're going to be wasted as a villain. Um, so, you know, but I enjoyed the movie. Um, I'm not going to run out to watch it again. You know, it's not one of those things that I'm just uh, pining to see again. But I will probably add it to my collection, and I'll probably watch it once a year or so, um, and you know, uh, in the background while I'm doing so- doing something else. Um, so, anyway, that's my review of X-Men Apocalypse. Yeah. You know, you remember, you can't really say it's not a good movie because it nowhere near plums the depths of X3, a total crap. Yeah. Uh, or X2. So, you know, yeah, I don't... You know, X2, I don't know, X3 just so bottomed out that franchise <laughs> that everything else is Oscar-worthy in comparison. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, no, it's so, uh, I don't know, which one, let me see, there was The Wolverine and then Wolverine. Right. One of them was pretty pathetic and the other one was actually really good. So, you know, I don't know. Yeah, X-Men Origins Wolverine was was abysmal. And, right. And Wolverine uh was actually quite enjoyable uh yeah but it's you know it's time for um i've just blanked on the guy's name time for that actor to, to give it up he's yeah, getting he, too old to play that part huge and ac- yeah. actually huge they're coming out uh with, with logan. old man logan yeah which looks uh, right. great yeah and the actually the uh the one shot it was based off of was just some amazing writing yeah. um in the in the comic book universe so and and he's he's getting older so it's like he's perfect to play the old man logan so yeah cool. so the the one preview that anybody has seen to that uh johnny cash singing hurt uh, uh, uh across the video it's it's one of one of if not the best two-minute trailer i've ever seen bar none it's it's right. a great trailer, which means the movie can't live up to the trailer. Um, but you know the the they've done the Logan losing his power so many times, it's going to get kind of old, uh, and it already is getting kind of old. But uh, they have you know they have Patrick just make the check out to Cash Stewart there, lending his gravitas. Uh, so you know it's it's going to be enjoyable, and I'm going to see it because I have to see them all. Uh, but I don't expect Strongbow. It, yeah, I don't expect it to be good. It's it's going to be enjoyable. They're not always the same thing. Right. Miles, have you seen Apocalypse? Nope. I I haven't seen too many comic book movies um, 
What? For man, must be five years. So you are truly the other in this this group, oh, and that's okay, yeah. You know, yeah, I'm the other. I'm not the. <laughs> I'll give you a whole bunch of other movie reviews that are kind of weird and wonderful, but yeah, they're not in the comic book genre, unfortunately. Well, uh, speaking of weird and wonderful, uh, uh, one I watched is a a, a little uh, little known, probably not well known uh, at all, uh, independent film. Uh, uh, Hello, my name is Doris. Doris, uh, starring. Um, well, it's a bad night for names. Gidget, uh, Sally Field, um, and it's a uh, it's kind of a uh, secret life of uh, Walter Mitty esque kind of movie, but with a female protagonist. Um, it's dark and it's weird. It's uh, you know uh, an elderly woman attempting to have a romance with a millennial. Uh, that's one story arc of it. And you, the whole time you're watching it, you're like, Oh, this is uncomfortable. Oh, this is uncomfortable, but I can't not watch it. Um, so it, it's that kind of thing. Um, really, I, I think that's a good film that isn't necessarily enjoyable. Again, you know, I just said apocalypse was an enjoyable film. That's not really good. Um, hello, my name is Doris is a good film. Well, after it, I was thinking about the messages of that movie, thinking about the, the the tones of it and the 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 way it was shot in this case the the um, the background and the cinematography is another character uh and and you can uh, you know no spoilers there there are things like like i said in secret life of walter mitty there are things that take place in the main character's mind and things that don't and and they blend the two and and as you're watching it you you pick up on the cues and the cinematography is one of the cues. Uh, there's a certain right. angle. There's a certain color uh, that you, you you're like, oh, okay, this is we're now inside uh, her head. But as the story goes on, they meld so much together that weird things that that people would think of are actually happening, and normal things are happening in her head. So anyway, it's um, it's it's a it's an it's a it's a good movie if you like the art of movies. If you're just wanting a popcorn uh, bubblegum fest, that that ain't it. But I enjoyed Hello, My Name is Doris, and, and Miles said it's it's weird and wonderful. Hmm. <laughs> I This is the first I've ever heard of the film, so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Sally Field doesn't get the credit she deserves for being a really good actress. Um, you know, when she was a kid, she was, oh, that cute kid. And then right. she was a sex pot, and she was, oh, that sex pot. And then as she got older, suddenly people had didn't have places to categorize her. And now you just got to look at her and say, wow, that woman can act. Um, and she's she's good. Cool. Um, and then one about this time last year, when we were doing our things to look forward to pre-recorded shows, um, one that I said I wanted to watch was Money Monster, uh, starring um, uh, oh bad name for night for names, uh, pretty woman and Julia Roberts, yeah Julia Roberts and uh, George Clooney. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, it's a the story is a a, a, a fast-talking money tv show guy kramer uh character kramer that's the guy's name right the real guy jim kramer yeah jim kramer it's it's basically him they lifted his template yeah okay yeah uh and this guy walks into the studio with a bomb uh and wants to explain why he lost his life savings um not uh, an action thriller necessarily. I mean, it's got pieces of action thrillers, uh, but the character development is really strong and it's just really and both enjoyable and good. I think that one sort of uh, uh, blends the two. It's not Hollywood blockbuster material, even though it's got really good actors in it. I mean, Clooney, again, a guy um, gets credit for his good looks and charm, but he's really a solid actor. 
and you know it's a, it's one of those things where the uh the bad guy becomes somebody you root for in the end spoiler alert um and so it's uh i i, I give it you know one and a quarter thumbs up so those are the three movies that i watched in the last since we were last together and i uh, wanted to, to mention them hmm cool i did see that money monster come up on the radar and i thought oh that might be interesting uh, but I didn't get around to it. So now I'm going to get around to it. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I would say of X-Men Apocalypse, it's one you watch while doing something else. Hello, My Name is Doris is one you have to focus on, but, you know, you don't want to, to expect a lot of it. It's a weird movie. Uh, and then Money Monster is the blend between the two. It's it's uh, it's one you can sit around with your friends and watch. Not really family friendly, just because of the nature of the, the content. Um, right. You know, one scene. Uh, this is a minor spoiler. The, the this low-paid intern is testing a new Viagra-type drug, um, and the guy is like, "So does it work?" Well, I don't know. They say it does. You mean you haven't tested it? We we go in the air in in thirty minutes. Go go test it. What what do you mean? Te- and so there's a scene where he's dealing with the effects of this medication in the way that you want to deal with the effects of this medication and it's it becomes a theme throughout the movie that guy becomes um a sort of a minor uh, uh pivotal role but the whole time he's dealing with physical maladies uh <laughs> that it, that is both comic relief and uh tension so not really family friendly but funny and and worth watching cool uh, and then the last thing I want to say, and then I'll shut up, is a book I'm reading, listening to right now. I'm not, I'm not done with it. I'm only th- uh, uh, a third of the way or so in. Um, but it's one of those rare books um, that I can't wait to get back to. Um, you know, most of the time a book is, uh, something that I read or listen to in my case, you know, on the, on the way to work, whatever, like the one I just finished was called Washington's Immortals. And it was about the, uh, the band of Maryland, uh, irregulars that Washington fought with for almost seven years. Uh, people don't realize how long the revolutionary war lasted and, and the leadings up to it and the winding downs from it. Um, and it was 13 hours and I felt every second of those 13 hours, um, it's dry. It's, uh, you know, not exciting. And, in uh, you know, uh, historical, uh, documentation can be exciting. Um, um, killer angels was a book like that. It was the, the book that the mini series Gettysburg that T- TBS did, uh, was based on. And it's a, it's a straight up historical movie. Um, but in done in such a way or a book rather done in such a way that they, he puts words in, in people's mouths. He invents dialogues, he invents actions that are historically accurate, but we couldn't actually know the dialogue that took place. And when I, when I was reading that book, listening to it, I, I feel pedant, the pedants out there telling me, you don't read books. Um, there's a point in that one where I was driving down the road, uh, listening to Pickett make his charge, you know, and, and I know how this goes, but the way it was weaved together, I was sobbing and snot running down my nose as I'm, as I'm listening to these things that happened 200 years ago. Um, Washington's Immortals, not that. <laughs> Washington's Immortals was, oh, that's interesting. How long is this book? Um, but I, having just finished that, so I say that to say moving into this book, uh, it could be I'm just reacting to the fact that I just came out of a, a dry spell for about two weeks. Uh, but this book, uh, and I'm, I'm tantalizing you with the name, um, uh, is uh, um, the characters are so well written. Um, the the it's the humor is total snarky. The I mean, if you like, if you agree, if you think I'm funny in any way, you would like this book. Um, mm-hmm. If you like to laugh at me at my attempts at being funny, you would like this book. Uh, you know the the lots of re- in references to Star Wars trivia and Star Trek trivia and stuff like that. 
and it's called We Are Legion, parentheses, We Are Bob. The Bobbiverse <laughs> book one. Um, and, you know, minor uh, setup here. Uh, basically, uh, Bob is a guy who, through a series of, of circumstances, finds himself in the future as an AI. Um, and so it's a 20th century guy or 21st century guy in the 22nd century as an AI dealing with that sort of stuff. And so you get the, you know, the, I don't know, it's hard to describe without spoiling it all over the place, but it's one of my favorite books so far. And again, I'm only a third of the way through it. It could, a lot of books start strong and peter out in the end, but this is enough that I'm actually willing to give it a strong uh, recommendation, even without having finished it. Because uh, so far, you know, I'm, I'm like four hours into the book, and the, those four hours have been enjoyable. If it, if it fails at this point, I'll be disappointed, but I will still have gotten four hours of, of good listening out of it. So, We Are Legion, parentheses, We Are Bob, by Neil uh, Dennis Taylor, Dennis E. Taylor. Available on Audible, com slash Audible, <laughs> for your free trial. All right, I'm going to stop now. Seth, what do you got to talk about? Well, um, Miles and I actually got together this week. He came to Dallas for work, and so I got to meet our other co-host for the first time in real life, and I introduced him to Texas Day Brazil. Any uh, longtime listeners probably heard us talk about it once at least. Still the best bacon in the world ever is on their salad bar, and I did good. You I mean did the not bacon have bar? to. Huh? You mean the bacon bar? Yeah. Where they have well, some lettuce? Know, salad. Yeah. Um, I didn't have to unbuckle my belt nor um, unzip my pants to drive home, so I think it was a win for me. But uh, it was, Miles was great uh, to me. You know, we talked for a couple hours, um, and by we talked, I mean I listened a lot because I don't talk a lot in person. And, um, and then, you know, we hung out and had a good meal, and I introduced him to the meat sweats. So Yeah, it was it – was, I – yeah, props to Seth on that recommendation. That place, I've never seen so much meat in my life. They just keep bringing out skewers and skewers of every form of meat you've ever imagined. So definitely not for the vegans. Yeah. And, you know, and I can tell them, you know, when they say, hey, if there's anything we can do, I was like, as a matter of fact, I love my beef somewhere between well done and burnt. And, you know, and I don't have to say anything else. And so. And they, they always frown out. a little bit as their heart dies inside when you say that. But they do, <laughs> they do bring it. They bring it to me. And I don't really care because I'm too busy eating to look up and see their faces. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'll take one of those. Yeah, I'll take one of those. Yeah, I'll take one of those. And, uh, you know, when I'm finishing up, could I get some more chicken wrapped in bacon? Because that's, yeah. that's honestly my favorite thing there is the chicken wrapped in bacon. As a, as a, um, uh, a long time well doneer. It was Texas Day Brazil and its uh, brother in arms, uh, Fogo de Chao in Dallas, that taught me to enjoy rare meat. And what I found out is that in the you know thirty years prior to that in my life, I've never eaten a good cut of meat. I had only eaten the cheap craft that we could afford. Um, I didn't know what a good piece of meat tasted like. And it was if you've never been to one of these places, it's a churrascaria, it's a Brazilian steakhouse, basically. Um, gauchos cowboys uh walk around they are both the cook and the butcher and the server um so they cut the the primal up into the the meats they put it on a sword they cook it on the sword on an open flame the uh the, in fogo de show that's the show fogo de show means fire in the floor um and they cook it there and then they bring it to your table and they slice off chunks of meat um and 
that's that's the way it goes. You you get a little card on the table. Green means go. Uh, red means stop. And it's the they have roughly seventeen servers per table. It's what it seems like. And you flip that thing on green, and sharks are there. Uh, it's a frenzy of of meat giving. Uh, suddenly, people will be all over you trying to give you meat, and um, you know a rookie has to learn to say no. Uh, otherwise, he fills his plate with meat, and then it all gets cold. And then there is a salad bar over the corner. I've never quite figured out why. Um, usually, I end the night with a plate of bacon. Seth, you end with with chicken wrapped in bacon. I end the night with just a plate of bacon. That's my sort of um, uh, palate cleanser. <laughs> well, I you know, I mean, the fact that you like to eat live food that's <laughs> that, that, that's that's you. Uh, you know, for me, it's as much the texture. I just. I love jerky, and it's as much the texture yeah. has the taste. I can't handle that slime. You know, if I'm eating Jello, I don't mind the slime. But when I'm supposed to be eating meat, and it's this slimy mess, I'm just like, it's I, not slime; it's juice. You know, it, it is so great. I can't. Eat, here's the thing: I can't eat the rest of the day. It's like hours before I get my appetite back, and you know me. That's like <laughs> I ordered, and it was like. I was done. I couldn't eat anything else. So, um, and then, you know, it was like, it was like good four or five hours later before I think, okay, I can eat something. It just, it destroys my appetite. Mm. It's just, it's, it's a awful experience for me. So we had a group uh, of guys back in Texas. Uh, we had regular carnivore nights and I say regular quarterly or so because it's expensive. And honestly, there's a price you pay physically for it as well. And so we would get together and our wives would get there. We were the carnivores, uh, the knights of the, of the carnivore, I think, or something like that. And the wives would get together. They were the carnivore widows and orphans. Um, and so we would do that and we would go and, and we would go to these places and there were several in Dallas. Um, and it, you don't, you, you prep for it. For, for like the day before, you know, you got to prep your stomach. You eat a little bit. You don't want to, you don't want to starve yourself because then your stomach shuts down. Can't do it. And then you're going to eat it. It's, it's something you plan for a couple of days in advance. Um, cause it's like $50, uh, a plate, uh, but it's $50 for prime meats. And so you just eat until you feel like you're going to throw up. You stop just shy of throwing up. Um, and what we learned <laughs> is that you can stop at the health food store and get these papaya enzyme tablets. And the papaya enzyme, if you eat a couple of those, uh, you know, with every course, it helps break down the meat in your stomach and you can eat more. So for like a $3 <laughs> investment in a papaya enzyme, you can get uh, more gluttony done. That's inside information right there. <laughs> I needed that. Uh, Mark, are you, am I breaking up to you because I can't? No, you sound fine to me. Okay, so we've we've seemed to have lost Seth Miles. Any connection problems on your end? Um, nope, I can hear everybody. I okay. think. All right, it's it must just be you, Seth. It is me. Okay. Um, I mean, because that's twice it's happened now. So let me, let me hang up on you and dial you back. Okay. Um, so while we're waiting for that, Miles, do you have any uh anything to say at all? Um, no, no. I mean, warm up stuff. I'm not sure. Um, uh, no, Seth and I did hang out we um it was great um we had a chance i actually took him to tour our data center there in dallas um when i say ours i'm a tenant i'm not <laughs> an owner or anything we have a small half rack in the in a data center in dallas and we went in there and get geeked out on networks and computers and flashing lights and way too cold air conditioning and loud noises and all that stuff that you get in data centers um and it was fun and uh, yeah, and then we then we went and had steak, <laughs> and it was <laughs> it was great. It was very caveman. I liked it. 
you you have to be a special kind of nerd to really appreciate a data center visit. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and I mean, we, the three of us are those special kinds of nerds. Um, I mean, I always, I'm amazed because I've been in, in rooms like that. I, I built a, a data center uh, at my previous job as we were building a new building. And I kept telling them the air conditioning is insufficient in this room. It's not good enough. And the general contractor was like, you know, for a room this size, you know, this is double what we would t- typically do. Yeah, but a room this size doesn't typically have dozens of heat generating devices in it. This is insufficient. Um, and in the end, they didn't listen to me. They went with the general contractor. Um, and at one point, the air conditioner actually at multiple points, the air conditioner failed a number of times. And, and one day, I, I'm not sure how long it had failed uh, over the weekend, but I came in Monday morning and went to uh, the, the room didn't sound right. Um, if you work around a data center, you know that there's a sound. It didn't sound right. I went to open the door and the doorknob burned in my hand. It was that hot inside. Um, and then sometime after I left, it actually burned down. The, the, data, the data closet burned down because the air conditioning failed and it built, built up enough heat in there that it, that it destroyed every piece of equipment in there. So one of the things that I geek out about when I go in there is if you're in this, depending on the size of it, it's this giant room. And all of these things, and and I know how much heat these things kick out, and it's fifty degrees in there at the same time. So just, I mean, you're 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 talking walk-in cooler kind of cooling there. It's it's basically restaurant quality refrigeration at that point. It's not air conditioning, and so that's one of the things that I geek out about. Plus, just looking at the beauty of all the cables in a row, it's just a wonderful (laughs) thing. Well, it's about a twenty thousand square foot facility, so it's fairly large. But it's you know like every row, every row of racks that you've got, you've got a hot side and a cold side, and you really do notice the difference. Um, and of course, if you're on the front side of it, where you get access to the front of the computers, it's always the cold side, and you get to the back, and it's stinking hot. Right, um, <laughs> and you know it's no different than than most, I'm sure. Fun stuff. I, I I would like to tour a real live twenty thousand square foot data center sometime. I, I've not been in one of those. I've been in in little brothers of those, and even yeah, those this, me. That one's actually our small one. <laughs> yeah. um, the one that we have here in Phoenix is a two hundred ninety million dollar facility, and it's about probably about five times the size of that one. And it's two story, and it's it's crazy. It's a real science fiction experience yeah. going into there. Wasn't it Microsoft who was working on building them underwater to make use of the cooling there? Or is that Google? One of those companies. I think it was Google, but I'm not sure. Um, you know, because if, if you, you – basically your entire superstructure becomes a heat sink at that point. Um, yeah. Uh, that's, you get to contribute that much more to global warming. That's what we can do to fix global warming. We'll just turn off all the servers, pick like a you know National Global Cooling Day, and all of the internet shuts down. So let everything cool off, and then you know that'll that'll be the equivalent of I don't know eight trillion pounds of CO two. I, you know, you were making a joke, but probably not. I mean, that sounds about right. It, or we need to get our transmission done better so we can put all the data centers in space and bring about the heat death of the universe faster. So, so Miles, tell me about your experience with crappy computers from China. Oh, okay. Um, well, actually, this is related to that data center. One of the issues that you often have with data centers are um, layer three switches and and sort of frontline, uh, what would you call it, perimeter level firewalls. And so I decided that I wanted to have a secondary perimeter level firewall that I could have at every one of our 
satellite data center. So if the main one goes down, I could have somebody just pull out a cable and plug it into the backup one, turn it on and gain access again. Um, so I've been trying to buy small mini, I guess you call them, what do they call ITC computer, the mini mm-hmm. computers. And, uh, you know, you see them pop up on, on Amazon from time to time and you get recommendations from people uh, on, you know, in the Linux community who suggest cheap and inexpensive machines that have multiple NICs on them. Well, I found one uh, from a company that uh, was in somewhere in China. I can't remember what it was. And I used to be buying directly from these guys. And I'd get about maybe four out of five of them worked. There was always one in five where it just was a dead fail. And, you know, you'd basically curse it. But what were you going to do? You couldn't afford to send it back. You didn't have some massive contract with DHL like they've got, so you'd just suck it up and accept it. Um, but that was okay because I was buying directly from the manufacturer. I could accept that. Well, I found uh, that I had to go and get another one of these boxes. I went on Amazon and found a unit that was actually half the physical size of the ones I'd been buying before. So I thought, well, I'll take a punt on this and I'll buy it. I mean, it's from Amazon, so if I have a problem, I'll just return it to Amazon. So I order it pay for it it arrives and it looks good i uh powered it up plugged it all in started to install the firewall software on there it all worked uh it looked great it recognized all the nicks natively i thought everything was going to be brilliant uh and then at the end of the install it comes up and says okay you know we have to reboot the machine to uh to apply all your settings so i hit reboot dead nothing wouldn't reboot wouldn't power back on again absolutely doa there was no way this thing could ever come back alive again which was really strange so um i went to the back to the web and i contacted the seller and i said you know what uh, what's going on this thing worked and now it doesn't you know what do i do and uh, they took days and days and days to respond back to any questions and eventually when they did the first thing they came back with and said well what sort of ram have got installed in it well if you ever buy an Amazon, they have a frequently bought together section on every listing. And I had bought the RAM that was frequently bought together with this machine. It was like crucial, 8 gigabyte RAM. Uh, plugged it in and it did work the first time. And then the guy says to me, oh, you can't use that RAM with it. And I'm <laughs> thinking, well, why is everybody buying that RAM with this thing <laughs> anyway? Okay, fine. W- what should I use? And he gives me some Samsung RAM thing. So I looked that up. $50 later, the Samsung RAM arrives. I plug it in, turn the thing on, exactly the same. No power, nothing. I mean, this thing's dead. I go back to the seller. I'm like, dude, this ain't working. You know, come on. This is not right. And the fact that it did work originally with the RAM that was there, I sort of think that you're not, you don't know what you're talking about. But I wasn't going to say that directly to him. Anyway, he goes, well, you know, do you want to send me back the motherboard in the machine and I'll send you another motherboard? And I'm thinking at this point, no. <laughs> well, you want me to open this up, pull the motherboard out and ship a part back so you can tell me that I broke it or something. It's like, no, I'll send the whole thing back. And, you know, well, at that point, I realized that the guy I'm talking to is in China and he is... And I guess this is an Amazon thing where when you get products that are fulfilled by Amazon versus products that are fulfilled by a seller, 
the return policy is entirely different. Um, on a product that's fulfilled by a seller, you are responsible to ship the unit back to the seller. And if the seller's in China, you're responsible to pay the $100 of shipping or whatever it is to get the thing back to them. Um, be, and then it's up to the seller to say, yes, I received it, and then credit you the sale. Well, I knew that wasn't going to happen. So at this point, I'm thinking, man, I should have known before I bought this that this was going to be the return policy because, A, the quality assurance sucks, and, B, the path of getting it back to the seller is going to be more expensive than it was to buy the thing in the first place. Um, so if anything, I walked away from it saying, you know, there's a message in this that other people have to realize is that when you buy from Amazon, please check who the seller is and who's fulfilling it because your return policy is going to be entirely different. Yeah, Amazon is in what a lot of people don't know is that parts of things on Amazon are just a marketplace, no different than eBay. Uh, they're just a storefront. Um, and yeah, that's my, my daughter learned the same hard lesson uh, from Walmart. With her very own hard-earned babysitting money, she bought a dress from Walmart, from walmart.com, from the Walmart website. It was shipped from Shenzhen, China. It was garbage, and uh, it was, let's call it $30 for the dress. Uh, and they said, well, if you send it back, we'll refund you the $30. Shipping was $27. And uh, so she, for the principle of it, she wanted to do it. So in six to eight weeks, we'll get our $3 refund back. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I wish that, um, I mean, we go to Amazon and we go to Walmart, we go to these companies because we, we trust their reputation. I mean, they, we've bought lots and lots of things from them in the past. And then when you start realizing that they're trading on the reputation, which is why you go to their website, but in fact, now it's not necessarily going to be fulfilled by them and the reputation is irrelevant. You have to rethink your, your whole purchasing strategy. So with uh, the holidays coming up, I'm sure with people buying a lot of, lot of stuff for gifts and so on, I just hope they don't fall into the same trap I fell into. Small business Saturday. Woohoo. Yeah. And, and <laughs> from a selfish point of view, I'll also point out that uh, if you use uh, somebody's referral link, such as, I don't know, elementop.com slash Amazon, that doesn't apply to things that are third-party sellers that just happen to be um, on the Amazon marketplace. So you might be thinking uh, you're doing somebody a favor and or getting a great deal and neither of those things are happening. Um, you know, I, I, I bought a flashlight one time and here's, I knew it was a, a, a thing, but I liked it so much. I liked the hack that I bought it just because of the hack and, and I bought it from Walmart and it was a free lifetime replacement forever for the life of the product. Uh, replacement for this flashlight. Uh, I bought it at Walmart in the in a brick and mortar store. Um, and on the um, fine point, uh, fine print on the package, so I didn't have to open it to find this out. But on the package, it said, "If you ever need a replacement, um, just uh, send us the uh, a letter and a ten dollars um, uh, postage, and we'll send you back a new one." So you know, <laughs> that's great. Except the price point on the thing was seven ninety nine. So <laughs> free lifetime replacement for $2 more than I paid for it initially. And I actually bought it because I thought it was such a great hack. I have it like sitting up somewhere like this. This is enterprising right here. This is great. You get to say free lifetime replacement and you're actually making money every time you do it. It's because uh, probably the $2 difference is what it actually costs them to make it. Um, but anyway, uh, you, you just got to you gotta be aware of stuff like that. Uh, and I can't even like in the case of the flashlight, I can't even be mad at them 
they're working the system. They're just being good capitalists. The guy in China, I can't even be mad at him, honestly. I mean, you can't expect people to always pay return shipping uh, on defective products. Uh, a good company does that, but it's not a requirement. Uh, it's an expectation that we come to expect from, say, Amazon, especially if you're a Prime member and you think, oh, well, this is Prime. They always take everything back. No, not if it's a third-party you know, a marketplace thing. So that's a good word of warning. Did you did you send it back, Miles? No, I haven't yet. I did print off the return label, and when I realized I have to affix my own shipping to it, uh, that's where I'm kind of sitting back going, oh, man. So yeah, I probably will, but I don't know. I, I just also, I don't know. I just feel like I'm dealing with vendors that aren't necessarily as scrupulous just in the way they handled the whole thing. And yeah, I mean, when, when they're first troubleshooting step was you diagnose it and send me the defective part that's when you know you're not dealing with a good company right right maybe it's just an expectation thing i mean we we're so used to in the west we're so used to a complete purchase as being a kind of a solution cell where you're looking for i've got this need you're going to provide me something that will fulfill my need and it's not so much about product or service or part or material or labor or whatever it's about solution right and we're used to that but when it comes down to the chinese market it's skews you know you're selling pieces of parts that are, are sold so quickly um, that they don't have any chance to somebody actually go in there and turn it on and test that it works um, so you're just part of you, you are the qa department and you know you start realizing that i'm part of the factory here i thought it was the consumer right but, you know now, I've I've made this diatribe before. Uh, different cultures have different um, mindsets with regard to trust. The uh, Western society, particularly the U.S., U.S. is a high trust society. Uh, you can Google this sort of stuff. The theory of trust, it's a real thing. Um, uh, in the U.S., we are a high trust society. We trust our neighbors to do certain things. We trust our businesses to do certain things. It's built into the fabric of the country. Um, my neighbor comes over and asks me to borrow my lawnmower societal contract says not only do i have to loan it to him but he has to return it to me in the same condition uh probably with a full tank of gas that's that's societal contract we we just know that without knowing that um and so much of our capitalistic leanings come from being in a high trust society uh you trust a company to stand behind their product because it's built into the fabric of our nation china depending on parts, which parts of the China, um, uh, is not a high trust society. Uh, and so you, you get screwed by a Chinese vendor. That's, that's the way it is. You know, they're not even mad. That's not even bad business. That's just a low trust society. The way they handle things are different. Um, much of the Middle East is a low trust society. Uh, you know, if, uh, a, a, a Middle Eastern, uh, transplant comes to the U S and borrows my lawnmower my social contract being an American says, well, I have to loan it to him and he has to return it back. His social contract as a Middle Eastern, and I'm painting with broad brushes here. Don't get mad at me, but these are, these are true generalizations. Uh, being a Middle Easterner, his low trust society is that idiot gave me a free lawnmower. Um, and so the, and that's just the way, that's just the way the cultures are put together. And so some of that when in a global market is you're dealing with a, a, a society that is fundamentally different and you're expecting them to play by one set of rules, and they're expecting to play by another. And you know, the Amazon is where they collide. You know, and also you, 
there's a difference between being a cheapskate and a tight wide. You know, like we know how much something costs. Like us being in the technology field, we know how much something costs in the technology field. And so if I see something for half that price, there's a reason I'm seeing it for half that price, you mm-hmm. know? And so if I do business with the established vendors here, it costs more, but then I get those societal guarantees of they've gone through and tested out and pulled out the bad ones and they deal with the refunds and I'm guaranteed a good one or a company that will make good. So if I roll the dice and go for something cheap, and then, uh, well, you know, hey, sometimes it hits, sometimes it misses. And, you know, and if you're lucky, you get more hits than misses. So, you know, part of that is just the nature of trying to get something for nothing. Yeah, we've talked about that before, too. The American race to the bottom, um, you know, generates, it, you get what you get, right? We, we rape our uh, environment and we uh, enslave children all so that we can get iPhones for $200, with a two-year contract. Yeah. And then we don't enslave our children. We enslave somebody else's children. So we don't right. have to see it. Exactly. So it's okay because we didn't do anything wrong. And <laughs> you know, I, I use the most bleeding heart liberal words I could find there. Um, but the, but the truth is in wrapped in that kernel of, of, uh, you know, inflammatory speech there. That is exactly what happens when I, when I demand my phone, um, my freaking supercomputer that I keep in my pocket for under $300, um, there, somebody's got to pay that price. There is a price being paid, and I'm unwilling to pay it. So, you know, Chinese slave laborers pay it, and, you know, and Indians uh, living in, you know, some of the, the worst environmental conditions because of the, the minerals being dug up there pay that price so that I don't have to. The price is always paid somewhere. Right. The, the other thing which is interesting was reviews. Um, when I looked on Amazon, there was no negative reviews from this vendor or on this product. So, in fact, all the reviews were stellar. They were, you know, it worked for me. It's I've run PF Sense on it. It's great. You know that sort of thing. Um, and then, uh, shortly after I bought mine, I started seeing negative reviews. Like obviously, there was like a bad batch or a bad QA thing going on. So I was not alone. I was I was one of a number of people doing it. But it also kind of proved to me that the power of understanding or uh, translating between these cultures has to come from crowdsourcing reviews. It has to come from the, the, the cloud of people out there on the internet putting in their two cents worth and hoping that you can rely on a quality review, uh, whether it be good or bad on something to make a, an informed decision. Because clearly in this case, you know, what I was being told, what I was, was that being advertised was not the case and the only way i would have had any chance was to read a negative review so of course i posted mine um you know because i don't want the next guy to have to fall on his his face with this as well but uh i just wish that other people had gone to the trouble of posting there so if if you have a bad experience or a good experience people please post your reviews on amazon so schmucks like me can read it and not fall prey to this sort of stuff and you know that's a you know what I was saying with the the podcast feedback is is the same thing there. Uh, I'm I'm every bit as guilty of that. I did I had never left an Amazon review until a website called Amazon Review Trader offered me a deal to do so. Um, and Amazon Review Trader now is not a thing anymore. They they're now a, a deal site because Amazon changed their their policies 
so that you can't give uh, free products or discounted products in exchange for a review because people were gaming the, re- the review system. Uh, there was an article, um, we probably should have brought it to the show, but they did a longitudinal study of, of thousands of reviews. They have the ability to do that sort of number crunching. And uh, Amazon had always required a disclaimer if you receive promotional pricing or something for a review. So they searched uh, reviews with that disclaimer, with disclaimer language, and reviews without it. And overwhelmingly, um, the numbers were just ridiculous. Like it was 89% chance of a four or five star review if it had that language in it, and a 30 to 40% chance if it didn't um, have a four or five star review. So there were five star reviews all around, but people didn't leave five star reviews unless they were compensated for it. That doesn't mean that the reviews were biased, but it just means that people don't leave reviews unless they're compensated for it. Um, and so now I have left dozens of reviews because I was part of that program and I got free and or cheap stuff for doing so, but I always left an honest review. I mean, some of those people, um, gave me free crap and I put on Amazon that I got it for free and overpaid. Um, you know, and, and that's, but cause I'm an honest guy and I don't mind stepping on, on toes, but I, I have heard other people in that community say, well, if I don't give them at least a four star review, I won't get more stuff. Um, which is true, by the way. Um, as my average star rating dropped, I stopped getting offers. Um, so now I make a point to review stuff because I'm realizing that that whole game is skewed there and, and the both the good and bad are not being said because we're apathetic and we're busy with our lives. And, and even the, with the best intentions, we say, I, I need to review this. I really like this thing. Or I'm going to test it out for a week or two uh, before I just write a review. I hate reading reviews saying, I just ordered this. I haven't got it yet, but it looks great. Five stars. Um, and I've seen those reviews. Um, so the, with the best intentions, we say, we'll review it after we've used it for a month and then never go back and do it. That review economy becomes critical. Uh, as we start dealing with a more and more global economy. And, and, you know, you just, you have been spurred to action, Miles, by leaving that negative review. But, you know, also, you need to do your part. I need to do my part. We all need to do our part of leaving reviews um, for everything. You know, eBay had that built right in. You you were sort of required to leave a review for every, not really required, but it was such an important part of the system, the reputation-based system. Uh, I left a review for everything I ever did on eBay but that never translated over to walmart.com or Amazon or anything else. Right. Um, and unless there's an incentive, i.e. in eBay, it's the reputation system. In my case with Amazon, it was, you know, being given uh, a freebie or a discount in exchange for my review uh, without the incentive. I never did it. Well, the incentive of it helps everybody else in the world, sadly, isn't a very good incentive. Hmm. A rising tide floats all boats. <laughs> So Seth, are you are you a reviewer? I mean, I know you're opinionated, but do you express those opinions? You know, I rarely. I do some in both good and bad. I've I've reviewed things that I thought were really awesome, and I've reviewed things that I thought were really crappy. But those are the exceptions that stick in my mind, and yeah. not my normal mode of operation. What the world needs more of is three star reviews, because um, the fact is, people tend to only leave reviews if they're five star or one star this was crap. I hated it. Or this is the best thing ever. Um, and you know, so I just saw the picture thinking about ordering it. Best thing I've ever seen on the web. 10 stars. Perfect. (laughs) Um, and so the, you know, the world exists in the middle. Most products are three and four star products. Most of the things that you do in the world are neither excellent nor terrible. 
But we only tend to leave reviews when we've been burned or just had an amazing service. But if you're looking at products and you see something that has a thousand five-star reviews and 10 three-star reviews or something that has a thousand three-star reviews and 10 five-star reviews, which one are you going to look to get? Well, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I tend to, uh, I, I review have, I read reviews very heavily before every purchase I make. I read the one stars and I look at, you know, are they morons? Um, and I read the five stars and I look at, are they morons? Uh, and so I, it's something, if a product has 5,000 reviews, I'm not going to read all of them, but I always make sure I read three or four, five, four, three, two, and one star reviews. Right. It's an important part of my, well, hold on. I'm not finished. It's an important part of my buying process yet. I never contributed, contributed back up until just last year. So this, the critical thing that I base all of my decisions on I was trusting other people to do it, and I never gave my own opinion. That that's a that's a problem. That's the leecher problem, uh, you know, in the BitTorrent world. Um, I was a leecher. I was a, a recommendation leecher. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, and, you know, and so Seth, to your point, not everybody does that. Right. You know, it's like, oh wow, this has a thousand five star reviews. This one has a thousand three star reviews. I know which one I'm going to get. Right. And then they tell everybody, yeah, I consulted the reviews and they didn't lie. They just didn't put as much consulting as, you know, others of us do. Well, I, I use that as a search parameter. I, in my searches, I check the boxes, prime eligible, uh, four star review and up, sort by price. Those are the parameters I put on every search I do on Amazon. So if most everything, so then you're not going to buy most things because you said most everything is a three star. So you're not going well, to get no. something. What, what I'm saying is most products in the world deserve three star ratings. Nobody gives a three star rating. Okay. You know, three stars is good. That's a good product. It's right in the middle. It's not great. It's not terrible. Most things in the world are good. But, you know, people only leave reviews if they think it's great or terrible. Right. All right. That was a that was an interesting side that I didn't intend to go down. Um, <laughs> Seth, do you want to talk about f- uh, flip my ride or flip my PC or flip my? I, well, I thought that, it's something created there, but it didn't work. Yeah, computer flipping. Uh, so I just you know looking for um, kind of odd jobs to do right now because I'm I'm just not ready for full time employment. I uh, I use the Facebook groups. Um, you know, there's one in the county I live, and so I go in there looking for computers for sale, and then I get them to post the specs, and I look and see what that's worth. And then I see, hey, you know, they're actually asking. So then I lowball them. Like if something, if they want three hundred, I say, hey, I'm interested for that, but all I have is a hundred dollars. And you know, I might go up a little bit if I want it. And then, so I buy it, and then I check it out. You know, make sure it's pretty well mal- malware clean, updated to the latest thing. Throw some free, um, free software on there. You know, like uh, LibreOffice and things like that. And then I turn around and sell it for basically what they were asking for. Yeah, and uh, so far I've bought three computers. I've sold two of them, uh, made a profit, and have two computers left. That's a that's a thing. Um, I'm doing the same. You know, I've, I've talked before about I'm eBaying and Craigslisting my man cave. Right. Uh, I have uh, in the mail coming to me right now a full 720p projector that I picked up for after shipping and everything about eighty dollars. Um, uh, the one I have now, I, I paid after shipping and everything about fifty five for uh, a 1024 by 768. So it's not pure uh, 720p. 
And my expectation is that once the new one comes, uh, I'll install it and then I'll sell the one that I have for more than I paid for the one that I have now. Um, because I, the, the fact that I got it for $50 was a fluke. The guy didn't write a good review. He didn't uh, do any testing on it. It was just, I know it powers on. So I was taking a gamble. Well, now this is a thing I know if, uh, uh, works. I have pictures of it in use and can show it with the the dazzling uh, near uh, high def image. Um, and I, I should be able to sell that thing for 150 easy. Um, you and, know, and, and here's what you do, Mark, from somebody who's done this. Also list it in the for trade because you never know what somebody will come in and offer you. You know, and you know, you can list it in both places. And if somebody pays you what you want, great, sell it. But if somebody comes and says, Hey, what would you trade for this for? You can then say, Well, I'm looking for so and so. And, you know, you might end up something that's very valuable for you and not valuable for them. And it's one of those you both win things. Right. So don't, don't neglect the, the trade section of Craigslist. You can make out. And the thing is they can make out too, because you know, your junk is his treasure and his junk is your treasure. You both think the other person got screwed and you both made out like a bandit. That's right. So don't, don't forget that. Yeah. The, the best transaction is when both people walk a rug way going, ha ha sucker. <laughs> yep. Uh, all right, a little bit of feedback from our audience, and I do mean a little bit. Canadian Dave, that's what I'm calling him, uh, offers a couple of tips. He says, greetings, Southern neighbors. I'm Canadian. Today, uh, okay, I'm sorry you all had to go through that election and what we had to wit- and that we had to witness it. witness it. That's all the politics I'll talk about. Two things your preliminary comments from the recent show caused me to want to share with you. Number one, I didn't catch if Seth's wonky computer was a Windows or Mac or Linux box. I'm thinking 60% it's Windows, but the 39% chance it's a Linux computer, this has helped me reboot my, a little more gently. Hold down, hold down the Alt key and print screen keys while you slowly, one key per second should work, spell the word resub, R-E-I-S-U-B will cause the a reboot that is gentler than holding the power button for five seconds. So Dave, uh, I'll read the rest of your email in a minute. Um, I didn't trust you. That sounded to me awfully darn suspicious. Some random guy telling me this is what we should do. So I Googled it. Um, and thanks to the, the, the anonymous strangers at Wikipedia, I know that that is not a single command, but a series of Linux command that shut down, uh, various systems, uh, 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 store, uh, uh, tail all, uh, uh, kill all the log files, uh, clear all the caches, uh, and then the very last one, B, is uh, to, to reboot. So it's not a secret command. It's a series of commands in order that create a low-level Linux reboot. Um, if the kernel is listening at all, it'll work. So neat idea, Dave. I, I had never heard of that. Either of you guys knew about it? Did not. I did not. I did not know that one. Yeah, but bet you Chris did. Oh yeah, I use that all the time. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and there are other if you if you Google R E I S U B, you'll find there are other combination of things like uh, there's a reboot one uh, as opposed to uh, well the, the B is a reboot, but there's a a shutdown and there's other ones that that do different things. But basically, it's a combination of Linux kernel level commands. So it depends on what's crashed on you. If it's uh, as long as the kernel is active. Uh, then you're good to go. But as I believe he correctly surmised, Seth's window uh, computer is running Windows, so this wouldn't help him at all. That is correct. There may be a command like this on Windows, but uh, you know, Windows just kind of doesn't give people access like that. 
All right, well, continuing on. Well, just in my case, it wasn't even up all the way yet when I did it. So, right. you know, there was there was no command because I hadn't let it boot up that far. But, yeah, interesting. And continuing his email, says, Number two, I've recently discovered a sci-fi show on Netflix, Netflix, Netflix <laughs> that I really like. Don't go to Netflix.com. I'm not responsible for you getting fired because you went to Netflix.com at work. Don't do it. <laughs> Returning to the email, I've recently discovered a sci-fi show on Netflix that I really like, and you might too, Dark Matter. The initial premise is that it's about a group of six people that serially wake up from stasis on a spaceship with amnesia, and they interact with a hostile world around them that knows more about them than they do. It's a little like Firefly, but less campy. Them's fighting words. Uh, Not only is the personal interaction good quality, but there are a few new science fiction ideas I hadn't come across before, or at least some unique twists. Try it. You might like it. Dave in Canada. So, all right. Thanks for the uh, recommendation. I'll add that to the list. You guys watch Dark Matter at all? No, I wanted to because I heard Steve Gibson talk about it. I think it's based on a series of books. But um, I I missed the first couple of shows, and then I was like, well, I'm not going to watch it then. Um, but yeah, I it looks like something I would like. And you know, come on, Mark, you got to admit, uh, Firefly was great, but it was cheesy great. So he used campy instead of cheesy. So he's obviously not a longtime listener yet. <laughs> well, he is Canadian, so maybe that's that's a different thing. Uh, so uh, anyway, the. Uh, I'm guessing, Seth, by what you just said, this is a television show, broadcast television, that old episodes are on Netflix and not a Netflix original? Um, I've seen it advertised on the Sci-Fi Channel. So it's okay. not an Asylum uh, production thing. So it's a it's a science fiction series that I've seen advertised on Sci-Fi. But yes, I do. I also know it was on Netflix, and I never got around to watching it before my subscription died. Who knows, Netflix might have it too. I'll have to check. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, according to the Anonymous Strangers at uh, Wikipedia, it's on the Sci-Fi, Space, and Bell Media networks. I didn't know there was such a thing as Bell Media, but now you know. Hmm. Um, All right. Started in 2015 and is still going. So there you go. Dark Matters. Douglas Adams referred to dark matter or missing matter as it was called in the seventies when he was writing. Um, he has a funny line in the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy that, uh, scientists were trying to figure out what all this dark matter was. It, it, it has to do with relativity. It, uh, the, the things that we see in the universe, uh, when plugged in the relativity, uh, equations, there's not enough mass in the universe that we can see to make up for the way things behave. So there must be this thing called dark matter. And then later they've ex- uh, expanded that to dark energy. Uh, they're theoretical tra- constructs because the math doesn't fit what we can see, so it must be something we can't see. So there's a, a quick primer there. Uh, but Douglas Adams said that the, after years of extensive research, they found out that it was the stuff, uh, the styrofoam packing peanuts, and that was actually the missing matter of the universe. Um, and once they'd done all the equations, that, that's what they figured out it was. Oh, man, I miss Douglas Adams. <laughs> yeah. And he died in the way that a man like him should die. He died of a heart attack while working out. Only he would appreciate that in in his unique way. Um, All right, we have some new stuff, but I've been putting Miles off for literally months now about something he wanted to talk about. Uh, And so we're going to give him the floor for a few minutes, and I'm going to start it by saying, Miles, 
Why do you look like you're on a rifle range? <laughs> um, well, a cu- couple of years. Uh, okay, so uh, context. I'm a programmer by trade, so I sit in front of computers for very long periods of time, and I've done that for decades. And it seems like as the computers got gooier, the light that's being emanated from the screens into my eyes kept getting more and more and more. And I noticed as I got older that I constantly wanted to turn the brightness down on the screens all the time. Well, you know how you get like uh, skins or styles or whatever of user interfaces, you can get the sort of darkest, the twilight looking styles where everything's black and the letters and, and text are in some color, but the background's black. I always found that helped me not feel as tired. Um, I'd get through a day and six hours or something after sitting in front of the machine and I'm just, I've got a headache, I'm just tired, I couldn't handle it. So anyway, I went to a doctor, a, a, you know, an eye doctor thinking, I need glasses, right? I'm getting old. Well, I'm not that old, but I'm getting older. And I go there and of course the guy wants to sell me glasses. So he says, well, yeah, you know, it's time for you to get glasses and everyone's eyes, you know, the muscles all gradually, they all wear out or something. And, you know, here, spend $500 and buy these. <laughs> and I, uh, great. Thanks. Thanks, Doc. You know, that's just what I wanted to hear. Um, that didn't work. I mean, it did a little bit. It took a little bit of the edge off, but it didn't really help me. And And then I found myself traveling a lot. And when I'm traveling, I'm on laptops. So... Laptop screens um, tend to get smaller, not bigger, because we don't really want to carry around, a, you know, 100 pounds of weight with us through an airport. So we, we're all buying 13-inch or, you know, it, remember the days when they had the netbooks where they had like 11-inch monitors? And, and people somehow... Or as they're to, commonly now known as, as uh, airbooks. Yeah. You know, yeah. Chromebooks. Right. I yeah, mean, the, the MacBook it, Air was essentially a netbook, but you paid five times as much, so that made it better. Yeah. And it was really hard to – I'd see these people in coffee shops using this stuff and, and on planes and so on, and you realize, well, it makes sense on a plane because if you've always – you've been that guy that you open up the big computer and then the idiot sitting in front of you decides he wants to lean the chair back and it crushes your screen. Yeah, I've been that guy. And it's really annoying. So you get a smaller screen. Well, you know, it doesn't help your eyes. And eventually I'm working on this stuff and it's just getting harder and harder. And I find I've I'm now I've got a two-hour long period of time I can sit in front of the machine before I start getting the jitters from, the, from my eyes wearing out. And I couldn't ever work out why. So I found another doctor, another eye doctor, and I went to them and they said, well, your glasses probably need adjusting. And they sold me another $500 pair of glasses and it didn't do any good. So at this point, I'm thinking, man, I hope, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. I've been sitting in front of computers for decades. I mean, maybe I'm uh, the first of a long breed of computer, you know, blind people or something coming out. Well, so, you know, you get on the internet and you start, asking questions you start uh, you know are other people having these sort of problems and i started to find out yeah i was actually in a community of a lot of people who had been programmers and working in front of computers for decades and their eyes were starting to go but they weren't going because everything was blurry it was a reaction to light so i thought okay you know uh, pretext of this is that when somebody tells you something on the internet you don't believe it 
<laughs> um, anything could be said. But there were so many people that were telling me this about this concept of the light coming from the screen, and they were using terms like blue light or blue spectrum in light that was causing the problem. So I thought, well, you know, I, I remember seeing TV shows where you've got journalists who sit in front of computers all day writing articles, and they wear these kind of orange lenses. Um, I remember seeing them on even back in the 80s on movies like Wall Street. There were guys like that. And uh, I thought, well, maybe there's something to that. So I, I did a little searching, and then lo and behold, there's a company out there that I stumbled upon in a Fry's Electronics. They had a little stand at the end of an, uh, one of the aisles and it's a company called gunner g-u-n-n-a-r and they make glasses for computer people and their biggest market are gamers um, because they're dealing with motion high motion gaming and their claim to fame is their glasses cut out this blue light spectrum and they're not that expensive considering so i ended up getting a prescription and sending it to these guys. And I've got to give them, um, this is where a review probably is, you know, justified. These guys were fantastic when it came to customer service and actually understanding what I wanted to achieve. And they sent me some glasses and I went from somebody who could only spend two hours in front of the screen without, uh, without suffering from massive eye fatigue. And I now routinely send spending 12 hours in front of machines because of these glasses. And, and it's because of that, there's a lot of people who will speculate on whether or not this is a thing or whether it really is medically sound or whatever. But the only thing I can say is I went from two hours to 12 hours. That's a thing for me because that's how I make my living. And to be able to do this for long distance periods of time. So if, if there's anybody else out there who sits in front of computers all day and is feeling the pain of their eyes, having eye fatigue for doing that sort of thing. Um, I, look, I'm not saying it's going to work for everybody, but it worked for me. So I, I was going to suggest try the try this company Gunners. I think it's Gunner.com or Gunners.com. Yeah, it's with an S. It's with an S, yeah. And, and they're really nice glasses. I mean, they're stylish and everything, but they've got all different types for different you know, applications. But, but I would highly recommend them. So if you're a tightwad like me, um, you will remember back in the days, the old Blubacher sunglasses. Remember those? Uh, the guy Amber on the Vision. beach. Yeah, guy on the beach singing. And also the Eagle Eyes. Uh, same gimmick, different company. Uh, basically, any amber lens blocks blue light. Um, now Gunner uh, probably uh, has taken it more uh, high uh, refined, right? Uh, and I can definitely tell their uh, lenses are less dark than your typical amber sunglasses. But for a cheap try, I mean, their cheapest. I'm looking on Gunners.com right now. Uh, their cheapest website uh, actually it looks like they have both Gunners and Gunner, so either one. Uh, anyway, I'm looking on their website right now, and the. Uh, the cheapest one they have is $59. Now, that's that's not tight water proofed. But I do know also that you can go to uh, Walmart and pick up um, amber sunglasses for $10 and give them a try. They're going to be too dark for you. They're not going to be ideal, but they'll at least let you know if this is going to be something worth spending $60 on. So there's my uh, tightwad tip. Just pick up any pair of amber sunglasses 
and uh, you will get uh, a some degree of effect from this. Are you guys experiencing any of this? What I was expo- what I do experience in regards oh, yeah. to seeing you do. Yeah, uh, it's because you- most most uh, uh, digital screens uh, skews to the blue spectrum, uh, and you know you're staring at. I mean, let's face it, every image we look at is an illusion. Uh, LCD screens less so than uh, the old cathode ray tube screens uh, where it was literally something scanning across. LCDs actually put the image there, but they're, it's flickering constantly. Everything we look at is an illusion. So, yeah, it causes issues, and, and I do experience eye strain. Of course, the more you're talking about it, the more my eyes are tired now, but that's just a good old-fashioned uh, sub, uh, subjective effect. Um, uh, but, yeah, I, I do exactly feel that. But my solution is I just look away from the screen. Uh, I make myself get up and walk around. I, I make myself take breaks. Um, and back in the days when I wore contacts, but before I had laser surgery, freaking lasers, um, I uh, uh, had a coating, uh, allegedly, I paid for it anyway, a coating on my contact lenses that would reduce uh, a screen uh, 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 glare, tiredness effect. Uh, I don't know if it actually worked, honestly. I really don't. But I, it would showed up on my itemized uh, bill every year when I got new contact lenses. Um, so, yeah. But, yeah, I, I agree with you. It is a thing. Uh, and it's not just whiny millennials that have a problem with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, programmers are subject to this because, I mean, the old, the old story with programming was that when you were sitting in front of a machine, you didn't actually get productive until you'd been there for maybe, I mean, 45 minutes or so, and then you're, you're in the zone, you know, you're starting to code. And coding, if you are a programmer, I'm not going to say a good programmer because that's subjective, but if you're a productive programmer, you probably code like it's, it's a linguistic thing. You, it, code becomes your language, your, your method of communication, your discussion, and you write code like you would write prose in a book, like an author would. And it's one of those things that you get to a certain point of um, doing it, maybe 45 minutes, an hour in, and you get in the zone. And when you're in the zone, you're burning like a madman. You're just cutting code like crazy, and you want to shut out all the distractions. And all you want to do is look at that screen and just focus, 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 and do that. And if you can't do that for any reason, that is a serious career uh, you know, ending problem because you're not productive if you're not productive you're not producing code if you're not producing code you're not going to get paycheck um and so if your eyes are letting you down it's one thing that maybe you're a slow typist but that's something you tend to get faster at over time but if your eyes are slowing you down it this is this is not good this is like a guy with a back injury who can't drive a semi-trailer anymore um, you give up that job and you find something else. Well, I wasn't willing to do that, so I'm thankful to these glasses. They've given me a, an opportunity to keep going for another 20 years, I hope. All right. Seth, have you had any experience with it? In, in that case, just to, to tag on to that, uh, $50, $60, $200 is, is nothing if it helps you be better at your job for longer. You know, um, Seth, have you ever tried coding in AmberVision? <laughs> No, but I know when I had, I, I loved Amber Vision glasses. They were, I I mean, I even preferred to wear them at night too. I just, I enjoyed the, you know, the way the world looked through them. So 
I might I might get a pair and try them out on the old computer and see what happens. Yeah, my the the sunglasses that I keep in my truck are amber because I I find I like it better. I, I find it blocks light and makes it more comfortable for me than the, the gray or the the blue lenses that you find. Uh, but I mean, you can pick those pick up a a pair of amber sunglasses for ten bucks. You know, pretty much anywhere, and that'll give you a a, a hint if this is going to work for you. They're not as stylish, and uh, you know I think they're probably too dark. Uh, but you know it's definitely worth looking into if you suffer from eye strain. The, yeah, the reason I ditched the amber glasses just to go off subject because you know what's a show we don't go off subject on. Was we have they, a subject. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, I I can't never. I like the glasses that kind of cover your whole field of vision, and I don't know if it's just because my head is so big. I tend to see the the world around the amber vision as well, and so it just kind of I'm seeing two different worlds, and I don't like it. So I I wear the other sunglasses that. I can't see anything that's not shaded. And so if I if I ever found a pair of amber things like that, I would have to come up with a new handle for the show, you know, because I, I would wear those things all the time. I would probably sleep in them. <laughs> um, I see here that the old eagle eyes that I saw, uh, one of the few things I ever bought on an as seen on TV thing, um, they're still around. You can go to eagleeyes.com. And I remember the commercial saying that it was – uh, modeled after the the oil inside an eye of an eagle what you mean you illegally killed an eagle to take its eye out <laughs> um they're still around for 60 bucks or more but i bought mine at walmart for nine um <laughs> but yeah it, the the thing is uh, because it blocks blue it screws up colors um greens look really hyper green but blues look brown or or dull gray so um that, that's a negative that certainly some people don't like about them. But, and if you're just staring at your computer screen, colors are less important than, you know, in gaming, probably it's not going to be as good, but coding, right. You're you're focused on your code. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. All right. It's a thing. So just the sunglasses made that big a difference to you. Yeah. Yeah. It's been huge. Um, I also found that I was uh, suffering from a lot of fatigue and driving at night, you know, with oncoming lights and glare from, traffic so i should have put two and two together i mean many years ago i started to get those uh night vision sunglasses for driving at night which allowed me to drive uh, long you know i could have without any issue at night time and i didn't clue together that maybe i have a high eye sensitivity to light and that potentially it could have come from the fact that i've been programming for 35 years so maybe uh, you know i it's it's induced what what I also wonder is whether I'm one of an early guard of programmers or computer people who or, or, or journalists or anybody who sits in front of a computer for long periods of time uh, who may also begin to start showing signs of this because uh, we've never seen that historically. We've never really ever had a you know a career path that puts people in front of computers for that length of time. Um, and to do it for decades and decades, it's got to ha- take a toll on somebody. So. And and those earlier project uh, uh, screens uh, exuded so much radiation that it could actually be just a symptom of being a guy who st- sat in front of early screens. Mm, that's true. Or that could be the plot of a movie called Simone starring Al Pacino. Who knows? <laughs> 
Was that, that wasn't the plot of that movie. I barely remember the plot of that movie, but it wasn't the, radiation sickness. Well, the the programmer who developed Simone got eye cancer from staring at CRT screens. Um, and so he gave it to this uh, director whom he adored just before he died. So it, it might not have been the plot, but it was the vehicle used to get the plot out the door. So. Got it. <laughs> All right. Um, so that's Miles' eye strain story. So you just have the one pair of glasses, or do you keep, you know, all over the place? Uh, I have these are prescription. Um, I have one pair which I use in my desk, and I have another pair I carry in my laptop bag. Yeah. Um, I'm, I like working at coffee shops and just out and about uh, for some weird reason. When you're focusing in on stuff like I do, it's kind of weird, but it's nice to have a bit of motion around you, even though I don't use that for distraction. It just gives you a sense of not, it's kind of like a yin-yang thing. It's weird. Uh, I tend to like to go into my own, I'll put some headphones on, I'll go to a coffee shop and I'll burn through code for four or five hours while there's all these other schmucks running around talking about what they saw on TV or whatever. Um, I don't hear what they're saying. But it's just this sense of not being isolated, and yet I'm isolated. It's kind of weird. Well, you, sometimes a, you need other people life. around you to bring you out of the rabbit hole. If you're yeah. sitting in your room, you you don't know until some external thing happens. You don't know how long you've been there. Right, right. And I, I'm no different to any, I mean, I'm sure anybody in their earlier programming years, maybe in their 20s, you know, we all lived a life where most of our productive work happened at three in the morning. Um, and programmers don't tend to like getting up early and, you know, we're night people. Uh, yeah, I still, to this day, uh, follow in those uh, footsteps. So, yeah, I, I guess I'm the quintessential programmer in that regard. I miss coding. I, I do. I used to really, really love it. Um, but I, I didn't find the um, – career success ladder that you did doing that actually uh, an interesting story uh one of my good friends in college uh, i was or in high school rather we were coming out of uh, high school and i applied at this software company in a small town in texas uh doing some sort of medical software honestly i don't even remember what it was but they were looking for an intern um and it was a paid internship uh and they uh wanted to uh pay somebody you know like 15 grand a year which for coming straight out of high school was a ton of money um, to uh, to do this this internship gig uh, and learn to code their system. Uh, and I showed up and I had I showed them some code that I'd written, showed them some programs, and they were like, "This is great." And I was like, "Well, you know, uh, I'm going to college in four months. Uh, can I can this work around my college schedule?" Uh, because it was an internship, I expected them to say that. And like, no, we we really need you to be here. You know, nine to five. Full, we're looking at this to go full time. Um, so I, I don't think that's going to work. And I was like, well, that's a bummer, but here, let me give you the number for this friend of mine who has pretty much all the same qualifications I do. He and I worked together on everything. Um, and, um, and like our computer science teachers in school called me Babbage and him Pascal. Uh, that was, that was her nicknames for us. And so I was like, you know, give him a call. So they called him to come in and apply for their their partnership and that became his career. He is now a coder and has, you know, probably makes more money than I can count um and has done all sorts of cool stuff over the years and and he and I uh, talk about that uh, from time to time and I tell him, you know, I I pretty much gave you your life. 
You know that, right? <laughs> and he said, no, you would not be where I am today because you're not enough of a jerk um, to, to have gotten along in that company uh, and have gotten advanced like you did. And I, I said, I think, I think. Um, but apparently the being a jerk and being a coder go hand in hand. And maybe that's why I didn't uh, have the commercial success at it. I, I would say yeah, I've met those those programmers. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I probably exude some of those qualities. <laughs> oh, I wasn't going to say anything. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. We've been going well over an hour now. So, Seth, I think one more time uh, I'm going to take all this hard work you did on the news and just throw it out the window. But we do have to talk about the 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 reason for the title of the show, and that is that uh, Linus Torvalds has won in every way. Yeah, you know, it's um, we are the victors because we don't have to do the everyday Linux podcast anymore. You know, we said because Microsoft developed a Linux distro. Well, it turns out they went one step further. They actually joined the Linux Foundation and they joined it at the platinum member level, which uh, is like that's half a million dollars. So basically all of the Linux royalties they collect on crap patents, they turn around and give it to the Linux foundation in terms of the, um, in terms of their membership fee. But yes, Microsoft kind of stunned the world. You know, this, this isn't last millennium's Microsoft because they're contributing to open source. They've open sourced their products. They're working with the community and they joined the Linux foundation. So you know, Linux truly does rule the computing world. Now, Just, let's let's uh, put this in proper context. Becoming a member of the Linux Foundation just means you gave them money. Um, doesn't right. mean that they're actually doing any advocacy or anything like that. And the $500,000 a year that it costs to do that just means that they no longer have cherry vanilla diet Coke Zero in their machines, but just regular Coke Zero in their machines. So this was a meaningless thing for both Microsoft and the Linux Foundation in terms of Linux advancement, but it makes a good headline. Okay, we're talking about if it. Steve Ballmer were still the CEO, do you think they ever would have joined the Linux Foundation? No. Uh, I don't know about Ballmer, but certainly not Gates. Right. So, I mean, you know, I think, you know, yeah, it's just proof that Microsoft has gotten back to being a software company because, you know, they're working about software now and trying, I don't know. They're also the, the stupid company that still makes bad moves, but there's no, you know, if they want to, this way it gives them the inside track to kind of help shape the Linux community. It's like a couple of years ago, Microsoft was in the top three or four in terms of code contributed to the Linux kernel. And the reason they did that, you know, and it wasn't a secret, they just wanted it to work well with Hyper-V. And so, you know, they didn't, you know, they didn't sue or threaten. They just, they got in there and did the work on the Linux kernel to make sure it was compatible with their stuff. Well, this kind of gives them an inside seat to make sure that what they do is going to be compatible with the Linux kernel and what the Linux kernel is going to be compatible with them because a lot of their businesses, a lot of their customers also use Linux and they want their customers to continue to be their customers. So uh, it, it's not, it's not a Microsoft is giving stuff away, but it's just a Microsoft is becoming a good citizen in the open source community. Yeah, this is, this is not Apple joining the open handset Alliance, but that's what a lot of, of the bloggers I've seen have, have been touting it as, um, this is just Microsoft covering their bases, um, right. Once run everywhere, has been their thing for a long time. And now 
they want to do that with, you know, Microsoft has been trying to become a hardware company for a long time now. Right. Um, they're still struggling with that. But uh, running, making sure that their hardware can run open source software is a, is a reasonable business step. So good on them for doing it. But it's it's not quite. I mean, when they wrote, when they started right when they wrote a, a made a Linux version, that was the the real death. Now this is just you know money. Well, uh, it's not a super big deal, but it's not nothing either. It's somewhere right. in between those ditches. It's on the road. <laughs> so well, I'm, I tell you what, I'm I'm going to beg to differ with you on that. I think this is a huge deal, um, and I'll tell you why. Microsoft have had decades of experience in their x86-based DOS uh, architected Windows, you know, platform that went all the way through to Windows 10. And if you've ever tried to put that on a cloud-based server and run it, you realize how poor it operates because of the overhead of a GUI and, and the whole Windows thing and the legacy and the history that it needs to have in order for their operating systems to be able to run code that was written 10, 15 years ago. And that's a big problem because we are switching away from a world of desktop computers to smaller portable devices or internet on whatever. And everything that Microsoft has to see as a future going forward for them, in order for them to actually have value to really add, is going to be based on their cloud-based offerings. We've seen their CEO come in and rebrand the company as being a cloud company. The Azure thing was a big thing for them. And that is significant. But when you try and make a cloud-based company and you're trying to put it on your own operating system, which doesn't perform very well in that world, you've got a big problem on your hands. We've seen over the last maybe 12, 18 months, a series of events with Microsoft where they have been using technology from Ubuntu, technology from other forms to create unix or linux based distros to be cloud hosted for their platform and that's really important because those headless environments that don't have a great deal of overhead work perfectly well when you're trying to put i don't know a hundred virtual machines on one hypervisor you can do that with linux you can't do that with windows microsoft know that we in the data center and hosting world know that at the end of the day Windows is going to be their consumer-grade product for their desktop computers, which they know has got a life, you know, a, a longevity issue. And Linux is their only option for doing cloud-based stuff with any meaning. So they can compete with Google, Facebook, uh, Amazon, Rackspace, whoever else. So it would not – I've gone public before predicting Microsoft to release their own Linux distro. Because what they're going to want to do is they're going to want to create an operating system, seed it to developers, have developers develop for that, and then allow them to deploy their work in the cloud in which Microsoft gets all the benefits of being hosting. Um, this is important part of that strategy. This is like a lobbyist going to Washington and sticking a lot of money into a political party that they favor in order for them to gain some sort of voting favor. That, that's what this is all about. But this is part of a line of events that we will see eventually ending up with a Microsoft Linux. And, and there is history with this. Microsoft in the 80s released Microsoft Xenix, which was their attempt at a Unix-based operating system. And this dates back to like 1981. 
and they eventually sold that off to SCO. Well, SCO is still a thing, so they can't try to claim that back. But there's, there's historical precedent for Microsoft doing this, and now they've got all the more reason to do it. So I think this is huge. What, what also, it, everything you just said, but also uh, what Microsoft needing Linux shows is that at their core, they don't know how to do the infrastructure-based stuff and the multi-user-based stuff that Unix slash Linux was built on. You know, they're, they're, uh, the, the Linux, the Microsoft Linux that we talk about is not a desktop version, but something that they run on their own switches in-house because they found out they didn't know how to code that. It's an entire country, uh, company, an entire culture that does not know how to write low-level, multi-user, secure code. So they, rather than creating it, they and they can't really go buy it. That's that's always been the Microsoft way. If you can't create, buy. Um, so now they're they're joining forces. But this is not because they care about the future of Linux. It's because they care about the future of Microsoft. Frankly, I'm okay with that because you know, uh, as Seth said earlier, the rising tide lifts all boats. Okay, cool. Yeah, Yay, Linux. I just <laughs> killed the entire conversation. No, no, no. You're right. You're, you're absolutely right. I think we. I I just watch this space. Microsoft will release a Linux version to developers to court them to develop for Azure. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think they recognize that the world of selling software is is gone. They they made their money off of that. They've done their thing, but now it's all about licensing services. They're, they're a services company now, um, even to the point of Windows 10. You no longer buy Windows 10. You subscribe to Windows 10. Um, they're trying to drag us all into that. Um, and so it makes sense that they would want to you know, feed that wolf, feed the wolf of providing services and not feed the wolf of, of selling software. You know, Google still has yet to figure out what they are. They, they are too uh, uh, tied to a dying paradigm which in their case is advertising and that's dying at web advertising is dying and they know it. They just haven't found their new thing yet. Um, Microsoft thinks they found it, but hasn't been able to make any money at it yet. So it's a, it's an interesting world of, of paradigms are shifting and the biggest companies in the world recognize that the paradigms are shifting, but they don't know what the new thing to grab is. Indeed. Fun stuff. Great time to be alive. I mean, Chinese slaves are making me $300 cell phones, and the, the greatest software giants in the world are floundering because they don't know where to go next. It's a great time to be alive. And <laughs> Yay, I, and Bitcoin. I didn't even, and I, <laughs> yeah, it's just what I was thinking. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> it's not quite at its all-time high, but it's way up there right now. Man, I, I, um, I was it. going to, um, when I saw that uh, it looked like Trump was going to win the election, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go in and buy a Bitcoin. Well, because I hadn't bought enough my limits, I went in and placed the order, and then I was like, your Bitcoin will be available in five days. And I was like, oh, crap. So it finally went through, and I couldn't make any money. And then I just looked over one day, and I was like, wow, it's way up there. So I sold my Bitcoin back, and you can tell Coinbase is turning into a bank because, I mean, they reamed me when I bought, and they reamed me when I sold. And so the huge difference in price netted me like $3. So yay, Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, and, and Miles had a story that we'll uh, maybe address next week about how Coinbase is coming under some scrutiny 
uh, for a number of reasons, uh, they're, they're uh, screwing <laughs> coming and going, maybe being part of it. No, I mean, that part, they're pretty much like a bank. You know, a bank's going to charge you when you deposit and charge you when you withdraw if they can. And so they want to make their money either way. So, yeah, I, I bought two Ether a while back and lost money on it immediately and still have lost money on it. But my Bitcoin is up. Uh, despite all the money I've thrown into Ponzi schemes, I'm up. So, right. you know. Um, all right. I think we are well and truly into the territory of having talked too much. Uh, so I will say this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can tell us what's on your mind. Go to elementop.com, click the contact us button at the top of the show, answer the world's hardest captcha, uh, and, uh, fill out the form that gets priority in my in basket and, uh, is the best way to contact us. But if you don't want to do the best way, the second best way is to send an email to geekrant at elementop.com. That goes to all of us, uh, or you can uh, use your leave your own voice mail on five five nine I am Opie. Leave us a Google Voice uh, message, and we'll probably play it on the show. Now, Seth, tell me what happened this week in history. Okay, well, this is sad news, and we're reaching way back in the time machine to November the seventeenth, nineteen twenty nine. Herman Hollerith died uh, this week in history. Herman Hollerth died of a heart attack at age 69. His experience before he was 30 at the U.S. Census Bureau and U.S. Patent Office and has an instructor in mechanical engineering at the at MIT set the stage for inventing the successful card system for a, the 1890 census. If you had eighth grade computer literacy at about the time I did, you remember Herman Hollerith, Herman Hollerith and his punch card machine. Um, after that achievement, Hollerith set up his tabulating machine company in 1896, and by and uh, by 1924. His company had become International Business Machines, a company that may or may not be around today. This week in history, <laughs> Herman Hollerith died. Oh, poor guy that nobody, none of us knew. <laughs> um, great man, though. Uh, formed a, a great uh, industry, right? Yep. Computing and tabulating recording company. Nice. All right. Um, and now, from Seth to Seth. What do you have to lower my productivity, thus making you look like a better hiring option? And frankly, this is going to do it. Uh, yeah, this one could get a lot of people fired here pretty soon, So, which is really good as I ramp up my job search. Um, I have came across a, a, an article from The Verge that lists all of the best electronic Black Friday 2016 deals. So uh, from eBay deals to Microsoft Store to Barnes & Noble with their $50 Nook tablet that I don't know why anybody would buy uh, to Amazon deals uh more microsoft best buy walmart target nintendo 3ds staples costco uh sam's and you know as they add other things it will show up here so you can click on this link and you know guys you can get some brownie points with your wife you can say honey look we can shop here at this site and you don't have to go trolling all over the internet but if somebody likes shopping they might like it but anyway when you're sitting at work, you know, planning your tryptophan coma, you can um, also peruse what you're going to do um, the day after Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving Day, or any time this month in the cases of sites like Amazon. Yeah, I think uh, this year is going to be the year of 4K, H, uh, 4K HDR TVs. Um, for years, uh, people have been having trouble find, trying to convince people to make new TVs. 
uh, or to buy new TVs rather. Right. Um, I mean, HD did it right, and but really, what made people switch to HD was not HD, but the FCC switching from analog to digital. Um, that forced a lot of people to go out and buy HD TVs. Right, and most of us are pretty happy with what we got back then, and so people are buying new TVs not because they just want the latest and greatest, but because you know uh, they move into a new apartment or one breaks or something like that. Um, and they've been trying all kinds of things. There was the the you know 3D phase for a while. Um, 4K has been around for a while. Nobody seems to care about that. HDR is now the new thing. Uh, um, high dynamic range. Um, but you know, meh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that anybody's really going to care. It's a, it's that content versus view problem. Um, but a 4K TV is pretty amazing. It really is. But my my 1080p is amazing enough for me. Right. And I think most people are in that. Uh, so I'm thinking, while there's a lot going to be a lot of Black Friday things, uh, I think maybe uh, after the first of the year, there'll be even better ones while they're trying to dump this merchandise. Uh, you know, we're just so freaking spoiled today. I mean, <laughs> I think back when I was a kid and a 21, I mean, I remember when the one television in our house was a 13-inch black and white black TV. Black and white. You know, that was, and that wasn't like the one in the bedroom that, you know, a kid held under his bed. That was the one at the far end of the wall in the living room that everybody sat around and watched. And, you know, and I had to go outside and climb up the chimney to turn the antenna. So, I mean, I remember when that was huge. And now I I would have to pay somebody large sums of money to take a 21 inch TV that I don't want to watch because I have a 40 inch in my bedroom. And now I'm probably going to lose points because people are saying you only have a 40 inch TV in your bedroom. I've got an 87 inch, you know, or something stupid like that. So yeah, we're spoiled. I'm sitting in front of two 24 inch monitors right now, you know, and before I went to college, uh, I never had a color television, My, my college roommate, had a 20 inch color television. That was the first color TV I ever had. Um, and so my, my spare bedroom TV is 32 inches. So I have more monitor in front of me now that I'm sitting, I don't know, 19 inches away from than the, the, the TV in the master bedroom. It's a, it is a, a crazy world. A friend of mine just moved into a house and there's two of them and they have three televisions. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we have two TVs and a projector, so three screens, uh, three large format screens for five people. But then we have uh, also uh, laptops and tablets and and you know and, and computer screens. My my kids prefer a small small format screen to a big one, uh, and they would rather watch something six inches away on their on their five inch tablet than they would, or I guess it's an eight inch tablet than they would on the uh, you know forty two inch TV downstairs, which again forty two inches tiny. Um, in today's world, but uh, I think millennials in general are are moving away from TVs, and so they're moving into monitors because that's where they get most of their stuff: monitors and tablets. So uh, I think our generation may be the last to really invest in TVs. Now we're going to be doing it for the next three decades, so TV manufacturers have a while while us Xers uh, continue to buy them. But I don't I don't know that millennials and and beyond are going to be interested well, in TVs. Here's the reason that millennials are interested in the small form factor because they're living in their parents' house and they, and they, really, have they, a TV don't, already. they don't have the big TV. So, you know, whenever their parents die and they inherit the house, then all of a sudden you'll see the uh, HDR TV start flying off the shelves. <laughs> 
I know you were making a joke, but that makes a lot of sense. It really does. <laughs> Isn't that sad? <laughs> oh my, yes. We we going down the drain, maybe. <laughs> All right. Any final words of wisdom before we say goodbye, Miles? I'll give you the, the, the mic is yours. No, no, I I uh, I'm still reeling from the whole TV thing because yeah. I agree with all, everything you guys were saying on that. But no, other than that, no, I am good. I am good. So, Miles, you, it's just you and your wife, right? Your your children are grown? Yes, we're empty nesters now. Yeah. And so how many <laughs> screens do you have for two people? Oh, you don't want to know. <laughs> Is that including all of the monitors? No, there? how many large formats? Oh, large formats? One. One. We have one 65-inch TV. Yeah. That's it. And if, you know, look, my wife has actually said oh, she wouldn't mind a TV in the bedroom or whatever, and... Yeah, we could probably put one in there, but you know, it's we both work from home. We both kind of run our own businesses, and the time we spend together tends to be congregated around the TV, and so it's more of a communal thing for us. So right. we don't we don't need any more than one. Yeah, well, the, like the TV that I said that we have in the bath the bedroom gets watched. I don't know. I watch ten minutes of news in the morning while I'm getting dressed. That's that's the extent. Of that television use, uh, we 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 watch uh, on the family room downstairs or not at all. Um, yeah, it's just not a big thing. I mean, I, on Sundays now that I have the man cave, I watch on the large format down and downstairs, and the kids are happy that I'm not taking up the family room for that. <laughs> um, well, actually, I, okay, um, I should say that my daughter does have a TV in her room, uh, but she's at college most of the time these days, so I guess that doesn't count, right? Does she have another TV at the dorm or yeah, college she apartment? Yeah, does, but the funny, th- the funny thing is they turned off the cable subscription down there because um, they used to give them that as part of the, you know, the rent thing. But they turned it off and I said to her, so, you know, because we were cord cutting, I said, do you want to go ahead and get a NVIDIA Shield or a, something like that? She goes, no, I'm fine. I'll watch it on my computer. Yeah. That's exactly what you said. All right, there's there's a bonus discussion after all, everything was done. We had another discussion. We we all uh, we're all about ranting here on the Geek Rant. So uh, it's time for me to say thanks for hanging out with us, everybody. Uh, once again, um, uh, is it? Will we have another one before Thanksgiving? Yeah, I think we so. won't. This no. is our this is our show before Thanksgiving, right? Oh, this will yeah. be released. Yeah. So happy Thanksgiving to those of you in the U.S. Uh, you Canadians have already had your Thanksgiving. Um, Go Cowboys! This is the, and one of the few days of the year that it's really, truly all about the food. It's it's not uh, a, a religious holiday that we made about the food. It's truly about the food, about getting together and eating a meal. That's so American. That's so first world. I love it. So um, for uh, all of you people who will be brining and basing your turkey, um, getting up at 4 a.m. to make sure that everything is ready so that your family can have a piping hot dinner, the labor of love, I will be mocking you because I'm frying mine in 90 minutes. Uh, so <laughs> enjoy that. Uh, but have a happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you um, again. Let's see. We'll have. Will we have another one in November, or is this the last one yes. for November? No. We will have one more in yeah. November. We will have. November 30th. No, yeah, that's right. It'll be released on the 30th. So we'll see you one more time in November. Uh, but for that's it for now. So, because that's the end of this episode of The Geek Rant. Mm-hmm.